Good morning, church family. Today we will continue with 2 Samuel, chapters 9 and 10. So if you would please turn there. Well, in seminary, I, uh, I had to ch- take a truly depressing class. We had to read a book called Facing Messy Stuff in the Church. As you might imagine, it was about messy stuff in the church. Relationships that have gone awry, difficult circumstances, people just doing unthinkable things. And I made the mistake of reading the whole book in one day, because class was the next day, and <laughs> which caused me to be depressed for a whole week. Right? It was that intense. But one thing that class reminds me of is this. It's this idea, maybe you've heard of it. Hurt people hurt people. Have you heard that? It's not an absolute, but it's a helpful reminder that when we find wrongs committed, it's often tied to some previous hurt that hasn't been dealt with or processed well. Hurt people hurt people. But what if the opposite is also true? What if loved people love people? That's what our text is about today. That those who receive God's loving kindness show God's loving kindness. Those who receive God's loving kindness show God's loving kindness. Love people, love people. Now you might be on board with that and think, oh man, I love love. Uh, that's great. Uh, God causes me to love others, I'm with you. But the real difficult part comes when we start to describe or define that loving kindness. Because often our idea of love isn't the same as God's. Our passage today will give us a clear picture of God's loving kindness toward his people so that we might have a clear image of what it looks like to imitate God's loving kindness to others. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is King David at his best. And when David is at his best, he gives us a window into the very heart of God as well as someone for us to imitate. Of course, ironically, probably purposefully, David at his best is set right beside David at his worst in chapter 11. But that's not my sermon today. Josh can deal with that in a couple weeks. Our whole passage today is about a king seeking to show God's kindness. Chapters 9 and 10 begin with this pursuit, but each find very different responses. This morning, I'm going to focus on chapter 9, but bring in chapter 10 as an important contrast. So as we read this morning, I want you to listen for the similarities as well as the differences in their response. And if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'm not going to read the entirety of both chapters, but I'll read uh, the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 9 and the first five verses of chapter 10. Chapter 9, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. 
Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you, he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. This is the word of the Lord. David, King David, is seeking to show God's kindness. And we're going to learn four things about this kindness that comes from God through David. But first, I want to call your attention to the word that really drives our passage. It's one of the richest words in the Hebrew Bible. Hesed. And if you're going to try to say it, warn the people in front of you because you'll get a little spittle on it. It's a hard H. Hesed. Most often in the Bible, in fact 75% of the time, it's used to describe God's actions. It's a word associated with God himself. I mean, you even get a sense of that in our passage in verse 3 when David says he wants to show the kindness of God. David is telling us this is not a kindness of his own, but one that emanates from God himself. Such a difficult word to define. So many translators use different words. I mean, just look at the two verses that start our chapters. These are in parallel David said, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Or David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash. His father dealt loyally with me. Loyally, loyalty, kindness. Same word, it's hesed. It's a word layered with so many meanings it's often hard to translate. I generally prefer loving kindness, and that's what I'll kind of use today. But one scholar suggests that you can't really define hesed. You can only show it. In fact, the story is better than the definition. And that's what our text does for us today. We notice four things. First, we will see the commitment of loving kindness. The commitment of loving kindness. At the beginning of each passage, we see King David seeking to show kindness to someone else. But for someone else's sake. Because of someone else. For Jonathan's sake. For Nahash's sake. Now, it's unclear the relationship between Nahash and David, what that was, but we clearly know 
the relationship between David and Jonathan. You see, long ago, David made a promise no one expected him to keep. In 1 Samuel 20, 14 through 15, we can read the promise David made to Jonathan. These are Jonathan's words. He said, I've got it on the screen here. He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Steadfast love. That's Hesed. Jonathan and David made a commitment to one another to seek the good and the benefit of one another and their family forever. So David, you know, he's now comfortably king. We learn from chapter 8 that all his enemies are put away. He's ruling from his throne and now seeks to make good on this promise from long ago. Even when all the enemies of David have been cut off from the face of this earth, he's going to honor his commitment to Jonathan. Because Hesed is a committed kind of love. And this is the sort of king that David is. He's someone who commits, who keeps his promises. Could the same be said about you? About me? I mean, it's no secret that commitment's one of the most difficult virtues in our day. I mean, we could point to different stats, right, about couples living together rather than getting married, or just the general decrease in long-term engagement across institutions, like the frequency of church attendance or community group attendance. Did you know the number one concern I get from community group leaders? It's something like, I just don't know if people are committed to coming. But this isn't a pastoral pity party, right? So we'll move on. I mean, commitment is hard, isn't it? And there are a lot of things working against it. In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he writes about the influence of consumerism on our relationships and commitment. A consumer relationship is a relationship that lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you, right? So if another vendor has a better product or price, you'll switch over, no problem. And in the marketplace, this, this is beneficial, right? I mean, it creates competition, striving to get better. It can be a useful thing. However, it's destructive when our personal relationships become shaped by our retail relationships. It becomes destructive when our personal relationships become shaped by our retail relationships. People become disposable. We just decide not to commit to anything at all. Or, more likely, we commit to something as long as something better doesn't come along. And friends, in a world of a thousand choices, something better always comes along. Yet the truth is, commitment is what we long for. Because we know, we know, that there cannot be relationships unless there's commitment, loyalty, patience, persistence. We long for the safe relationships with people we know will never leave us or forsake us. We long for the friends who will always have our back. One pastor gives this illustration for the committed love of Hesed. He says, you know, Hesed, it's kind of like an elderly couple who've been married 57 years, but the wife gets really sick and can't care for herself anymore. So the husband dedicates himself to caring for her, feeding, bathing. That's the committed love of Hesed. Love that never quits. We have people in our church 
The reason that illustration stuck with me so much is we have people in our church living that out day in and day out. And when we see that kind of love, we long for it. We long for it because it's a picture of the very love of God. God's covenant love will make you a committer rather than a consumer. This was David's experience as God committed to him from the wilderness to the throne. And it can be our experience as well. David, decades after he made this commitment to Jonathan, is now following through. He could have forgotten. He could have neglected. No one would have blamed him. No one would have even known. But he didn't. Because when you know God's love and commitment to your good and your future, you can make commitments. You can keep your promises. Because those who receive God's committed love show God's committed love. And it's not just seen in big ways, but in the small, everyday commitments we make to friends and family and co-workers, showing up, following through, seeking them out. I want you to consider the commitments that you make, the commitments you make and you keep. Consider how you can value commitment in your life and your home. And this, to me, as much as you, I'm sure some of you out here are like, Jordan, there's a few commitments you're not keeping to me. We can talk about that later. But because it's real, guys, it's real. It's something we all deal with. We all struggle with. And we all can grow in because commitment is key to loving kindness. You know, David's commitment, it's astounding and inspiring. But what we see next is completely surprising. When we ask the question, okay, commitment, got it. But who is that commitment to? Who is David's committed love directed towards? Which brings us to our second point, the surprising reach of loving kindness. Who is David trying to show loving kindness to? The answer, an enemy. In chapter 9, we have an internal political enemy, someone who could usurp the throne from him. And in 10, we have an external enemy to the nation of Israel. So enemies inside and out. And these extremes are meant to show us the surprising reach of God's love to his servant David. In other words, the extremes teach us it's about anyone. We're going to key in on chapter 9 here. David, right, he finds this servant named Ziba who, who lets him know there's a son of Jonathan still alive. His name is Mephibosheth. Practiced all week, just for you guys. When Mephibosheth is brought before David, he lays face down before David. And one of the first things David has to say to him is, don't be afraid. Why? Because Mephibosheth assumed his life was over. Friends, the way it worked was that when a new regime came to power, they would eliminate everyone from the former house. Because you don't want someone from the former ruling family coming back to take your throne to challenge your rule and your reign. In fact, this is the very thing that happened uh, earlier in 2 Samuel. Do you guys remember this? David and the house of Saul are in a terrible civil war. People rallied behind Ishbosheth, Saul's son, trying to make him king. Thus, I mean, David, being challenged by Saul's family, is a threat he knows all too well. And it would make sense for David to eliminate 
the remnants of Saul's family. In this earlier narrative about the Civil War, we're also introduced to Mephibosheth. Maybe you caught it uh, a few weeks ago. Because we learn there a second thing about him. In 2 Samuel 4.4, we learn that when Mephibosheth was a child, his nurse took him and fled when they heard the news about the death of Saul and Jonathan. Why? Well, the nurse knew that with them gone, others would come to finish off the house of Saul. So she picked up the child and she fled. But as she fled, Mephibosheth was dropped and both his feet became crippled. So we learn that not only, not only is Mephibosheth an enemy, but he's disfigured and he's handicapped. And all this time he's been hiding out in a northern town of Israel, really in the wilderness. This young man, who was once a prince in a palace, has grown up handicapped, hiding out in the wilderness. It's unlikely that Mephibosheth had a kind disposition toward David. I mean, David's rise meant the fall of his own family, as well as his destitute hiding and living. There's interesting parallels to even when David was out in the wilderness, when Saul was king. Here you have a reversal of that. But we know that he didn't think much of himself either. In verse 8, he calls himself a dead dog. He considered his own existence useless. Now some 15 years after his accident, he's brought before David the king. So you can imagine how terrified he would be lying there, trembling before David, assuming this is the end. After all this time, after all this terrified waiting. And yet what we find is the surprising reach of God's loving kindness. David seeks an enemy, an enemy who's handicapped and in desperate need. And he wants to act kindly towards him, not to kill him, but to love him. This is crazy. It's nuts, but it's completely biblical. And and at this point, you're probably asking yourself, right? I mean, why would David do this? How could he love an enemy? And maybe you're like, well, Jordan, you just talked about it, the commitment thing. You know, his commitment, his deep love for Jonathan or his gratefulness to Nahash. But that alone doesn't get you there, does it? It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's stronger than that. How can David keep these commitments of love and kindness to his enemies? How could he bring Mephibosheth from the wilderness to his own table? The answer is found in last week's sermon on chapter 7. So go there if you want to find out. We'll go over it. There we find the radical loving kindness of God in David's life. God says that it was him who made David king, taking David from the fields. It wasn't anything David did. And then God says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love, Hesed, will not depart from him. So I want you to notice the explicit flow of all of this. In chapter 7, David receives the loving kindness of God, and in 9 and 10, he demonstrates it to the extremes. 
to his enemies, to those who felt worthless. In other words, to everyone. Those who receive God's loving kindness show God's loving kindness, even to enemies, to everyone. You and I know this more fully than even David did, don't we? For we were once enemies of God. And yet, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Christ came to show God's steadfast love, love and kindness to us. Christ came to show that no one is outside the reach of God's loving kindness. Not one of us. Have you received God's loving kindness? Responded in faith to Him? Is your life marked by loving kindness? It's not as though you earn it, but a mark of having received it. Just like David. Notice the kindness David shows is not of his own making. Right? I mean, he's simply responding to the very kindness of God in his life. I mean, even when he talks about showing kindness, like in verse 3, it's God's kindness, not his. It was God's loving kindness to David that motivated him to keep his promises, to love his political enemies, to those who felt worthless. Is my love, is your love marked by the same thing? Well, let's keep going. Let's keep going to see what the actions of this loving kindness look like, which is our next point. We've seen the commitment and the reach, but next we'll see the actions of loving kindness. I want you to look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. This is the core of the passage. And while it doesn't say everything about loving kindness, it gives us a picture. Notice David's first words when Mephibosheth is brought in are his name. David recognizes this man who had essentially been forgotten. But the passage, it's even more subtle than that. You've got you to read closely to find it. Notice in verses 2 through 5 and in 9 through 13, the writer refers to David as king. King, King David. But in 6 through 8, there's a change. When he is in conversation with Mephibosheth, he uses his personal name, David. And it's subtle, but it's intentional. You can almost sense the change in tone. David isn't lording over Mephibosheth. I'm your king. Submit to me. But meeting him as a person. Giving Mephibosheth dignity and personhood. In a similar way, we have the same thing happening in chapter 10. David is sympathizing with Hanun. He's treating him like a guy who just lost his dad. Not a, not a, not a king or an enemy, but a person. This is the first act we see of loving kindness, dignity, recognizing the dignity in others. Next, we find that loving kindness removes all fear. We've already spoke about the fear present and seeing the fear in Mephibosheth's face. David doesn't hesitate to calm his anxiety and alleviate his fear. David says, do not fear, for I will show you the kindness of for the sake of Jonathan. David alleviates his fear by promising to show him loving kindness, hesed. And it's not because of anything that he did, but because of what his father had done. 
It reminds us that even God's grace isn't because of anything that we've done, but something that's been done for us on our behalf. Next, we find that loving kindness empowers the other. One of the remarkable things about Hesed is that it mainly describes some concrete actions. You know, uh, that's why I think kindness is a good translation. It, it's like it's seeking the good and building up of another person. It's concrete. It's kindness. It's kind of like I, I really like the you know the difference between niceness and kindness. Niceness, you know, if someone has spinach in their teeth, you just won't say anything about it. But kindness, you'll point it out. You're like, hey, you got spinach in your teeth. You should get that out. That's kindness, not niceness. And God calls us to loving kindness. Concrete actions. Look next to what David says. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Later in verses 9 through 11, we find that David also gives him Ziba and his household as servants to help him work the land. David's generous, but it's more than that. He uses his wealth and the power that he has to empower Mephibosheth to thrive. Giving him land and a workforce. Giving him a job to do. Mephibosheth, you might think that you're worthless, but hey, here's some land I need you to work. Here are the people to help you do it. can't help but also think how risky this would be for David. He's giving his political enemy status and power. What if he uses these to come after David later on? This is the remarkable power of loving kindness. David using his wealth, status, and power to give Mephibosheth a future and a purpose. Not just generosity, but actually asking, giving him, going above and beyond, going above and beyond to seek the good of someone else. Okay, lastly, loving kindness creates family relationships. Notice how verse 7 ends by saying, you shall eat at my table always. Uh, This phrase is repeated two other times, and it's key, it's key to the reversal of Mephibosheth's fate. To eat at the king's table It was no small thing. Verse 11 clarifies that eating at the table means joining the family. David invites to the table someone who had nothing to bring to the table. And in doing so makes him a son. This is is the crescendo of the whole episode. An enemy becomes a son better than any Hallmark movie you'll ever watch. A truer Hallmark movie than you'll ever watch. An enemy becoming a son. You know, I'm continually fascinated by the role that food plays in the Christian life. Church people sometimes get made fun of for potlucks and gatherings with food, but table fellowship, it's always been key to building strong relationships. We have a picture of it here. Those who share the table are considered family. It's remarkable. Over and over, Jesus sharing dinner with sinners. Paul being invited to dinner with others. A 
Of course, there are other ways that we invite people into the family. This isn't, this isn't it. This isn't the one thing. And there are difficulties with, with eating and all that stuff. But it's remarkable how such a simple action can have such a profound significance. Four actions. Dignity, putting fear in its place, empowerment, and treating people like family. What are the ways you can demonstrate this loving kindness of God? It doesn't have to be enemies. We often think that uh, kings and superheroes are the only ones who have enemies. But But I'd be remiss if I didn't consider some of the political overtones here. I mean, maybe it simply means treating someone from the other political party with dignity. Maybe that's it. Because for David, it was a very political situation. But there are more than political applications. We see people every day who deserve dignity. Maybe it starts in your family, with your kids, with your spouse, meeting them as a person, seeing them and the struggles that they face, recognizing where they're at in life. Or maybe it's in your, in your job, in your workplaces. Are people in your workplaces just tools to get jobs done? Or are they people? Are they treated like people with dignity and respect? We encounter all sorts of fear and anxiety as well by the expectations we demand. Often we're the ones who feel face down on the floor trembling with anxiety, longing for someone like David to say, do not fear. Do not fear. I will show you kindness. How can we extend that to others? But first, how can we recognize that from God? How can we hear his voice that says, do not fear? There are people we can empower also to thrive through your own actions, through your workplaces, but also in working with others. I've got to pray for Union Rescue Mission this morning, and, and it's just such a great example of this kind of loving kindness that empowers others to be able to go and to do, to live, to grow, to thrive. And then lastly, who can you invite to the table? Who can you treat as family? Maybe someone in this church. It's a good place to start. Well, before we end, one thing remains. How will Mephibosheth and Hanun respond? The reception of loving kindness. It can be hard to accept kindness, right? I mean, we question other people's motives, and sometimes we need to. I mean, it would not be wise for me to accept the kindness of the prince who emails me and tells me he wants to give me a lot of his money. He probably doesn't have my best intentions in mind, right? But that's not really what we're talking about here. How do you respond to the kindness of God? Because there's a clear line from God's kindness to David and David's to Mephibosheth and Hanun. And in these episodes, we see those who receive or reject God's loving kindness and what it can look like in our own lives because it has to start there. 
We have to receive God's loving kindness and then show it. How do you respond to God's loving kindness? First, look with me at chapter 10, verse 3. Hanun is persuaded by others to treat David's kindness with suspicion. You see that? They don't think, they come to David and they're like, look, you think David's got your best interest in mind? You think he's coming to console you? No way. David is coming to seek out the kingdom and overthrow it because this is what would happen. When there's a regime change, that's the moment you strike your enemies. When there's a regime change, there's dysfunction and you strike, you attack, you decimate. But that's not what's happening. And Hanun goes further than just suspicion, doesn't he? He treats them with hostility and humiliation. Hanun humiliates these servants by cutting off half their beards and cutting, he's kind of cutting the back of their clothes so their bums are showing, right? Something middle schoolers would laugh about, but for the rest of us, it's humiliating. And even in this, we find a small, we find this continued loving kindness of David, right? They can't come into the city David has to go out to meet them. And he's like, look, guys, I'm so sorry. Stay here. Wait for, you know, your beards to grow back in and then come, come into the city. Another small evidence of God's loving kindness through David. And where does this rejection lead? Where does it lead for Hanun? Who's become a stench to David, it says. War and destruction. Similarly, for all those who reject the loving kindness of God, the only thing that awaits is judgment. But for those who receive, they have been given a future and a hope. In verse 8, Mephibosheth receives it with gratitude and undeserved mercy. And it's a striking parallel to how David receives God's love in chapter 7. David sits before the Lord, similar to Mephibosheth's paying homage. And they both have a similar question. Oh, who am I? David says, Oh Lord, who am I that you would bring me thus far? This is a picture for each of us in how we receive God's love with gratitude at his undeserved mercy. Have you received God's loving kindness by faith with gratitude? Just overwhelmed by his undeserved love and mercy. Oh God, who are we that we should deserve your mercy, the lives you give us, the places you put us? Receiving God's love made all the difference in David's life, made all the difference in Mephibosheth's life, and it can make all the difference in yours as well. To know the one who finds you an enemy who finds you and calls you, who died for you, that we might live to worship and serve him. When you receive Christ's loving kindness, you're given dignity. Fear is put in its place. You have a promised inheritance and you're adopted as a son. Notice towards the end of chapter 9 and verse 12, we learn that Mephibosheth has a son named Micah. Way less complicated name. Mephibosheth, who had no future, handicapped and on the run, living in the wilderness, we are told he now has a son 
And this is meant to show us Mephibosheth now has a future where there was none. In Pastor Julius Kim's sermon, he invites us to imagine what life was like for Mephibosheth as he joins the royal family at the dinner table. As they add another place at the table, you can just imagine it, right? The family starts rolling in. They take their seat one by one. From the confident Absalom to the beautiful Tamar, they all sit to eat. You can almost hear the sound of someone shuffling in. Everyone turns to look at the newcomer. Head down, slowly making his way in. Because you see, chapter 9 ends by reminding us that Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet. Why would it say that? Because on the one hand, his circumstances hasn't changed. But at the same time, everything has changed. He's finally found a home where he had none, a family where he had none, a future where he had none, all because of David's loving kindness. So as he shuffles in and he finds his seat and he feels worthless among these great lords, the king comes in and takes his seat and connects eyes with Mephibosheth across the table and smiles because all of his sons are now at the table. Everyone's been included. Friends, we have the same opportunity to receive God's love and kindness toward us, his salvation for us, and in turn demonstrate it to those in our life. That they might see the very kindness of God that has transformed you and me. Will you please pray with me? Lord, you have bought us and brought us adopted us as your sons. We long for the day when we all join around your table. But Lord, until then, may our lives be marked by your loving kindness. That the dignity you've given us, we would extend to others. The commitment you show to us, we would commit to others. The belonging you've given us, we would receive others to welcome them. Lord, may your love work in us and through us that you may be glorified and praised in us and through us. In Christ I pray, amen.